All right, everybody, welcome back to Wake Up Call. We are at episode nine already, and this is going to be a rant and discussion episode uh, where Milda and I pick a topic of our choosing, uh, talk about it for a while, and then debate and go back and forth and discuss whether we agree or disagree and try and find the areas where we agree or disagree. Milda, what are you taking a look at today? So today, at the start of my rant, I'll have a bit of a therapy session, just share my feelings as a university student that's starting their bachelor's. And then I will go on to talk about the myth of a meritocracy, or the capitalist myth, as I like to call it, and why you should work less, especially as a student. Okay, so let me start off, I guess. Uh, I feel like many people, especially us, like me and you, Vishva, and I, our listeners, when we're young, because we're quite interested in like the world and like have aspirations, we dream that our life can be something very exciting, that we can create a life for ourselves that is not the general nine to five, but something more exciting and to become rich, right? But I feel like as you step into university, you start living alone, you start paying for things yourself, that bubble burst quite quickly and you sort of see a little bit how your dreams can shift away even uh, if you don't exactly want them to. I think it's very easy especially as a student to sort of get in that mindset that yeah you know this is how my life will just look. I will finish my studies, uh, work a shitty part-time job during those studies which is like at a big corporation which will probably make me extremely overburdened, overworked and miserable but just for sustenance because I need to get that money. Then after my studies, I'll get some internship if I'm lucky and maybe work a job that's according to like my degree and what I finished as my studies. And then when I'm 40 years old, I will probably be somewhere at the top positions at like wherever I'm working, hopefully if I'm lucky enough and if I have connections and stuff. And then, maybe then, when I'm 40 years old, have a family, have kids, I will have some money that I can, like, enjoy myself, actually. That I can pay my bills, you know, do what I need to do, and also buy some caviar once in a while, or go to another country with my kids, or send my kids to private school or something. And to me, I understand that this is already quite a privileged life that I'm talking about, right? But to me, that seems so miserable and so boring and just not what I want to do whatsoever. I don't want to just go to a 9 to 5 every day. Even if you love your job, it still gets boring. It's not something that you want to do. And so I came to the conclusion and this sort of wave of motivation hit me recently that this is my time and these are the years to sort of not fall into this loophole. Uh, and uh, do something else with your life, possibly. And I mean, the podcast is one of these things that I'm doing, but you should always explore all other options of like income and stuff. So, but the, the reason why people fall into the cycle and why people, especially right now, are very obsessed with having that like work hard, play hard culture, being the id girl, being the next Gary Vee, and sort of following these very capitalistic people who just push you to work and work and work. Because we have the narrative in society that if you work hard, you will be rewarded a lot. This is 
kind of the idea of a meritocracy simplified by a lot of times. A meritocracy generally is a society which is governed or ruled by or like the elite people, the people that are CEOs, the people that are governors are people who have the most ac accomplishments, people who have put in the most work, uh, got the most merit and have the most accomplishments. And a lot of conservatives especially would tell you that that is the society that we live in, right? If you put in the work, you can be successful. And I disagree. I don't think that if you put in a lot of work, you will necessarily be successful. I think good people don't always get good things. Um, it usually happens the other way around. So I want to talk about this myth of a meritocracy that we have um, in, in today's world. And I call it the capitalist myth because it's extremely easy for governments around the world to sort of shift the blame on people by saying, look, if you're poor, that means that you just don't work enough. Like, I'm sorry, like you just should work more, I guess, and you'll be successful. And I think that is a morally very abhorrent stance to take. That is not how the world works, once again. So what is the reality that we have? Firstly, I think meritocracy doesn't exist whatsoever. We see that the middle class is overall shrinking. The rich are getting richer while the poor are left to suffer. They cannot escape their plight, even if they work a long, long hours and try very, very hard. We can also simply see who gets into Ivy Leagues and stuff and how your socioeconomic background, how your parents, how your skin color even or ethnicity really helps you get more in life or even if you're a man rather than a woman. Um, so, you know, it's not only on your merits. Secondly, I think it is especially important to notice, especially for like students who are choosing a profession, let's say, that your success in life generally depends on the market's demand, not necessarily on how much work you put in to your certain profession. Like right now, everything that is about the internet uh, or IT specialists are very in, in very high demand, right? So if you finish programming, if you go into software development, you probably will have a good life these days. You will probably definitely get a job, get a good income and be quite financially secure. But if you, I don't know, become even like a teacher or in Lithuania, if you become a lawyer, we have too many lawyers. That's a, like a huge issue in Lithuania. No one will care, truly, even if you're the best at your class, like you will not be valued so much uh, like for a long time after you finish your studies. In some jobs, you will not be valued for your whole life, no matter how much you work, just because the market doesn't really demand your skill set in the current day and age. And thirdly, I think we can see how meritocracy doesn't exist by the fact that the people who are actually most needed in society, this looks like teachers, this looks like uh, healthcare workers or caretakers, uh, you know, women or men who take care of elderly people and stuff. They're paid pennies, right? Like in a lot of countries, they're paid the minimum wage, if not less, uh, if not like if they work on like an individual contract, I mean. So your salary really does not represent your use utility in society and how much effort and work you put in. Look like look at like a hedge fund manager or some sort of, I don't know, banker getting the salary that's like three or four times bigger than a teacher and stuff. So yeah, 
that's why this myth should just very much be seen and uh, comprehended. But even if we understand this, I see so many young people nowadays still falling into the trap, still believing this, these things and sort of giving all of their energy to this. Like I see young people who are pretty privileged, by the way, I do understand that like, I'm not talking about people who don't have a choice. I know that some people, a lot of people in the world don't have a choice and have to work two jobs and have to, you know, because they have no social security net or financial net to fall back on. But I'm especially talking about like students like you and me, like our friends, like our acquaintances. I even see these kind of people working two jobs, right? Uh, like trying so hard every day, being consistently tired, having health problems because of that consistently like running everywhere and trying to do your best. There is this whole trend right now, even on TikTok, on just being perfect, being the it girl, uh, you know, waking up at 5 a.m., doing a workout, going to study, going to your job, going to your second job. I think that is so toxic and that is not something that we should be normalizing. And that is definitely not how you can achieve like that is you, you, that it can be successful for you, but that shouldn't become the norm labor at this kind of level should not be normalized, especially unpaid labor. Right. So then I guess what's my conclusion is what you can do as a person who sees that they're falling into this trap. Well, I think as a student, if you do yourself, if you do see yourself working for like uh, a big company uh, as a part time job, because usually students work at like Starbucks or in retail in H&M or something or they work in hotels or the, you know, other big corporations. I tell you that you should work less and truly like, because your boss doesn't care about you. I cannot stress this enough. Your boss, the people at the top of the company, the CEO could not care less about you and your well-being. To them, you are a number. To them, you are replaceable. To them, you are just a person that will be changed in a few months or in a year, you know? So you can, you know, don't worry about it. You can be the last person to walk in. You can be the first person to go come out of work. I tell you that you should really, really be prioritizing yourself and your happiness and not be putting in the maximum amount of work every single day just to be seen by your manager or just to, I don't know, feel like you're doing the most. Because I even heard, I, I saw people talking about this, how in many, many office jobs, for example, you have to stay there for the eight hour workday, right? But you can get your job done in like three hours. So most people are simply either procrastinating or just small talking in the office or I don't know, getting lunch or just doing their job very, very slowly. My friend told me the same thing. She works at McDonald's, right? This is literally her life as well. So I would say just prioritize yourself in that sense. Secondly, I mean, I think, of course, later in life, if you can actually manage to find a job that you like, that is enjoyable to you, perhaps climbing that corporate ladder and switching jobs and, you know, doing a nine to five every day would not be so miserable. And if that is something that you want to do, do it. But also do not think that your job necessarily defines you or that your labor, the amount of work that you do necessarily proves your worth. I think 
definitely not. I think we should be separating the individual from their profession a bit more and understanding that even if you do not do a maximum amount of work every single day, you are still a worthy person and you still, uh, you know, that your labor should not define your worth. That is what I'm saying. But thirdly, if you do see yourself as a young person who wants to try out different things, who wants to maybe freelance or not have that nine to five, there are some things that you could definitely look into and some skills that you can have that the market really, really demands nowadays. I would really, really recommend looking into, let's say, copywriting or marketing. For example, Google, Facebook or Snapchat ads are very, very important nowadays to many companies. And if you do have like skills in that sphere, you can sell them and freelance in this way. You can also look into designing. I know many artsy people who could legitimately design logos or ads for many companies which are paying big money for that nowadays. So if you have that, definitely utilize those skills. Also, you could look into content writing or even making TikToks or search engine uh, optimization. These are all learnable skills for free and all good skills to have when you're freelancing. So basically, those are some things that you could do if you do not want to fall into the trap of a meritocracy or the capitalist myth for at least some while. So that is it. Uh, well said, Milda. Um, as you may imagine, I just have a lot of, I have a lot to say uh, about this topic. There's one thing in particular that I think while you presented a, an excellent case as to why you should, you know, I mean, everyone knows that working in the corporate ladder isn't enjoyable, nor is it, is it meant to be enjoyable. I just think that there was some sort of underlying theme in which you should only be doing things that you enjoy in order to get ahead. And I mean, sure, that would be nice if, if that's how the real world works. But in order to be doing things that you enjoy, you need to profit off the labor of someone, whether that's yourself or someone else. So what what would you say is, a, is an alternative um, to hard work as a means for, for enjoyment and self Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, I think this really depends on every individual and the skills and the the things that they want to do personally. I do definitely agree that like we do have to do some things that we don't like in life just to get by. And that's normal. That's natural. But I think many people, the problem that I wanted to say is that many people choose these kind of lifestyles, even if they have the opportunities to not fall into that desperate trap. And like I said, you can definitely use your skills such as designing or content writing or copywriting that are very in demand by the market. And in that way, you could work less hours, but get more money and enjoy your life even more than in a nine to five. Yeah. OK. I mean, that makes sense. The other question that I had was when you're sort of like, you know, talking about the you're railing against the sort of like Sigma grindset, it girl, like lifestyle where you're you know working super hard um being super productive um and you're and you're saying it's toxic and maybe in some ways it is but i don't know i just feel like instilling a value and a culture of of like working hard despite it of course like you know meritocracy not being a a, a fully realized thing hard work does 
pay off more than not working hard. Maybe if you work hard, you won't find success. But if you don't work hard, you definitely won't find success. Yeah, that's definitely, that can be the case. I don't know, but whenever I see Gary Vee or like another libertarian tech bro, you know, having those motivational videos, I just want to laugh at their face. Like, honestly, I want to laugh at their face. Because I, I don't know. I, I, I disagree. I think it's I think it's good that people are, are trying to put like, you know, they're I mean, I don't know. I've never watched Gary Vee, full disclosure. I don't know anything about this guy. Um, so please don't quote me on making a statement about Gary Vee. But I just I just think it's a really good thing for people to be getting the message. Look, you don't have to be stuck in this cycle. Take your life into your own hands. It's not going to be easy, but it's possible. Perhaps if that helps them for sure, but once again, I think we should be really looking at things realistically and for a lot of young boys who see Gary Vee, like I don't know how he also came up to be who he is today, but there's definitely more stories of people failing probably than of people succeeding and also the people who do succeed and who are extremely rich usually have had some sort of external help from their parents I don't know, or their ethnicity or their race or them being a man or I don't know, them having a profession that fits the market's demands. But yeah, I think it can motivate you. But at the same time, it can also lead to a false perception and can also put you in the cycle where you consistently work, but not necessarily with any results at the end of the day. Okay, I'm going to go social constructivist a little bit. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to give my answer to the question first so that you can you can take issue with it or think it or think it's bad or whatever. So in my if I were to construct a society and, and a society that I want today, it's basically built on the idea that with enough work, commitment and talent, people can move up their social ladder and improve their social position. It's basically a philosophy where I look to remove barriers that are stop, stopping people from self-actualizing. I'm not saying like, look, I'm going to just let you become rich just like that. No, you, you have to work for it and it's in your hands. And if it's not in your hands, it's in someone else's hands. And that doesn't seem very fair. So my ideal society is removing all barriers to upward social mobility. This doesn't mean that like, you know, you can be doing whatever you want and then getting rich. It's if you do the right things, there is a pathway for you to to have what you want in life. So what is, what would, how would you sort of, it's a very yeah, yeah. complicated question. I apologize, but I'll, I'll let you have the floor. No, it's fine. I love, <laughs> I love constructivism. I'm glad you brought this up, <laughs> but um, generally I think this sort of narrative already exists in many Western societies. Maybe yours is a bit better because it, I, I understand the barriers you're sort of talking about, but also the sort of narrative that you know just work hard do the right things and you will see results i think it uh, misses the injustices in the world and it sort of allows then government officials to not help certain individuals and to neglect them just because you know just by saying you don't work enough or you have chosen the wrong path in life where in reality it's much harder i mean we need to look at generational poverty and, and other underlying injustices in the world, not only these sort of very statistical barriers such as, I don't know, like 
even, even the same socioeconomic backgrounds. Sometimes there's more informal barriers, such as uh, sexism, let's say, in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I just, it's kind of difficult to quantify those barriers, which I guess um, puts us in danger of, of either overestimating or underestimating them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's definitely an issue. And Nonetheless. This is why I'm, I'm more of a, of a sweeping programs kind of guy. Like I look to, like when I'm saying, talking about, you know, uh, systemic racism and things like that, I, I, I think that a more accurate way of dealing with that rather than direct reparations is direct income supports to families that are suffering. For example, families that are, you know, impoverished. For the most part, you're going to affect African-Americans and that's going to, you know, help their, you know, help ease some of the, some of the economic impacts of historical injustices. But at the same time, you're helping other people that may not have necessarily faced systemic racism, but have faced barriers of another kind and, uh, and, and support them as well. I, I, I know yeah, it's a very nebulous thing I'm saying. I agree with that though, I, I definitely do. Um, but I think especially in today's world, if I were constructing a society, I would rather focus on helping, like helping the most disadvantaged individuals because we have been having this individualist work hard culture for so many years now. And especially in times of crises like today, climate change, migrant crises, you know, inflation, we should be focusing definitely on the ones who have been disadvantaged by these things the most and saying, okay, maybe these people don't work as hard as us. Maybe they work less hours. Maybe they're unemployed. Heck, but like, I would be for helping them still. And for, okay. yeah, so that would be. Yeah, me. understood. And and I think that I think that we both have the same end goal. Um, but I think that I have a much more individualist um, way to do it. I'd basically give them a fishing rod and, and tell them like, look, if you want fish, go catch it. Whereas you would, you know, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm really straw manning your position here, but I <laughs> no, think it's fine. I, I think, I think, I think, um, I think that's enough, but I think there's, I think there's some things that we won't see eye to eye on. For sure. Okay. So what are you talking about then today? Well, um, I'm going in a completely different direction from uh, this economic inequality and, and capitalism. I'm going to be talking about what is going on in Iran. I know a lot of you may have heard that, you know, there's some protests. Maybe you've heard that it's involving women's rights. What I'm going to do today is basically provide some background on what happened to spark these protests. Uh, going further back into history, you know, talking about Iranian history, providing some some context for what's going on. And then I'm going to be, you know, talking about what we can do, uh, what my opinion on it is, and um, and yeah, and just providing an, an, an overview and, and my take on the situation and ways that we can help women in Iran. So basically, let's first talk about the background of the incident. So I think we're going to go as far back as 1979. There's, of course, there's Iranian history before that, that a lot of people may be interested in including, but I'm going to start at 1979 when the United States backed King of Iran or Shah of Iran was overthrown in a popular revolution um, that established 
the Islamic Republic of Iran. So this revolution against the Shah was actually quite popular. Uh, many Iranians were uh, fed up with the Shah's authoritarian um, behavior, locking up dissidents and his um, alliance with America. Yet the party that ended up, you know, coming on top of this revolution was the radical fundamentalist um, uh, Ayatollah uh, Khamenei of Iran. This is a fundamentalist religious group that basically established Iran as a theocracy. Uh, they implemented some strict religious codes, including a mandatory hijab for all women in public places. So the punishment for breaking this is up to 74 lashes uh, if you don't wear a hijab in public. Uh, this is right within the Iranian uh, criminal code, but often this punishment isn't carried out through the judicial process. It's often extrajudicial, enforced by Iran's morality police. They're basically a police that are in charge of ensuring that all these religious codes and all these doctrines are maintained for um, Iranians and everyone is, is following them. So this is what happened to Masa, Khamenei, uh, Masa Amini. She was a Kurdish woman who was arrested by the morality police for not wearing a hijab in public. And then she was detained to undergo a quote-unquote briefing class or re-education class so that she won't break this morality code again and why this code is so important and why everyone must follow it for, you know, society to not fall apart, basically. Uh, the police later, after her detention, told her brother that she had suffered a heart attack and been taken to the hospital. And the hospital where Amini was taken released a statement saying that she was brain dead at the time of her admission. That post has recently been deleted um, by the hospital. According to several witnesses, her co-detainees, other women that were arrested by the morality police, she was severely beaten by the police officers in the van when she was arrested because she had the audacity to talk back to them about how unjust her arrest was. Her brain scans from the hospital that she was admitted into were leaked by a hacktivist um, to the public and showed evidence of skull fractures, a hemorrhage, and, brain, and a brain edema, all um, signs that she was quite brutally assaulted and to the point where she eventually later died in hospital as a result of her injuries. The Iranian government attempted to create forged medical records for it, saying that, oh, she had had a brain tumor from a long time, and this is why she died. And, um, you know, she was just so panicked by it, basically releasing a whole bunch of, of, of stories that were essentially lies um, to cover it up. But, I mean, of course, the hospital records were hacked and leaked. We know what happened to Masa Amini. She was a victim of police brutality to the point where she actually ended up dying of her injuries. So her killing and just how audacious and how cruel and 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 um and gruesome it was has sparked protests not only in Iran but all around the world. Women are taking off their hijabs in Iran, standing for choice. Um many men are joining alongside them and fighting for um women's right to choose whether to wear a hijab or not. And the reality is most Iranians do not support the mandatory hijab. Only 14% do. 
In response to these demonstrations, the Iranian government has been violently cracking down on the internet. Um, they have been arresting protesters, basically not allowing anyone to organize in the street, uh, shooting people with, you know, uh, weapons and things like that. Um, to prevent people, all to prevent people from organizing and uprising against uh, a cruel and an unjust government that represses the rights of all their female citizens and male citizens, but especially their female citizens through this enforcing of a very rigid religious doctrine uh, only believed by extremist wing that actually controls uh, the country. So, I mean, of course, protests of solidarity all over the world. I'm going to be going to one tomorrow in Montreal. Um, and my stance on, on what is happening is very clear. And my stance on the Iranian government, uh, the Saudi government, all governments that violate human rights in such an egregious manner is, is very clear. We should not be doing business with them. We should not be talking to them. They should be sanctioned. We shouldn't deal with them whatsoever. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable treating your citizens this way. I feel this way about all authoritarian countries that crack down on the rights of their citizens, whether it be China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, etc., etc. My stance on this is very clear. There are certain standards for basic decency that we in the West must enforce. If we truly believe in freedom, if we truly believe in women's liberation, we shouldn't be dealing with these people. Ultimately, we should support the Iranian public that is rising up as much as po possible. Elon Musk, our libertarian tech bro, has donated Starlink satellites to protesters to help them connect to the internet even when traditional cable routes um, are shut down by the Iranian government. Many people are donating to groups that are supporting women in Iran, uh, advocating for their education, advocating for their rights, etc. But all of this, in my opinion, is ultimately futile unless there is another Iranian revolution. The reality is that nothing will change in Iran. This government is built on a radical version of Islam that is incompatible with feminism, freedom, and human rights. This is what the Ayatollah, or the religious leader of Iran, said at this. Uh, about this, about this, um, about women wearing hijabs. He said, and I quote, Improperly veiled women should be made to feel unsafe. This sort of rhetoric is just simply unacceptable. And you're, you're dealing with a government that is, deal, that is taking the most extreme interpretation of a religion that is largely peaceful. Look, the Iranian people are Muslim too. Yet, by and large, they do not support a mandatory hijab. They support choice and they support a women's right to choose. And I hear a lot of the everything is America's fault crowd talk about how American sanctions are somehow the cause of this because it causes the citizens to be anti-America and support this cruel regime. Look, that's just complete hogwash. This is just circular logic that really grinds my gears because it refuses to put accountability in the hands of the Iranian government, who are the real people that are at fault here. What is America doing to oppress these people? The government of Iran is a fundamentalist religious force that makes their decisions based on an extreme interpretation of their religion. No matter what American sanctions were, they would not change their policies towards women. They would not change their uh, policies to, towards basic human rights. Why? Because it is simply incompatible with their ideology. 
This is like saying, oh, if we trade with Russia, the Russians will be less likely to hate the West and Putin will stop invading Ukraine. No, that's not how authoritarian ideological governments work. That just does not make sense. Trade with Iran only empowers the Iranian regime by making them richer and allowing them to further repress the rights of their citizens. It also gives them legitimacy so because they can show their citizens, see, look, America, Canada, um, Germany, France, they all recognize us. They all see us as equal to them. They're doing trade with us. We're a legit government in the eyes of the world. I don't think that the West government should interfere in any way other than doing what they're doing right now, which is basically cutting Iran off. This is an internal issue to Iran. And despite how much I support the cause, despite how much I, you know, share uh, share the, the feeling that many around the world have of empathy towards the Iranian women and Iranian people at large, it's simply not an issue for the government to intervene. We just can't do that. This is an issue that's internal to Iran. And we can really do uh, not do much more as individuals and as governments than send aid and express our solidarity. Let us hope that the tragedy of Masa Khamenei's death is the final straw that awakens a population to rise up once again against a cruel authoritarian fundamentalist government that represses the rights of all of their citizens. I have hope now more than ever that within my lifetime, the Iranian people and the Iranian women in particular will once again be free. Wow, thank you, Ishva. I really enjoyed this because what I'm seeing primarily on social media is just photos and videos of the protests, which are of course heartbreaking. But I feel like many, many of those posts fail to tackle why is this the case? Like, what is the government yeah. uh, there and what is the history behind it? So it was very insightful. But I do, I guess, want to talk. Uh, I have do. I have a couple of questions and I especially want to talk about the trade aspect and stuff. Because in my opinion, sanctions should always be targeted on specific individuals, on extremist groups stuff like that. I'm not sure what's your opinion on it. But talking about the trade, I feel like trade still, you know, helps uh, citizens in, in a way where they do have, let's say, either American companies there or Western products flowing in, and they can still not be so isolated and get those benefits from that, maybe. Don't you agree? Actually, I think you have a point here. Um, and Perhaps I should clarify um, the the position that I had. I think um, what I said earlier was basically we shouldn't be dealing with them at all. Uh, what I what I meant by that is we shouldn't be dealing with their governments at all. Um, and and the reason that I that I talk about the stance is because countries like Canada and America literally sell arms to the Saudis that do the same things as the Iranians do, um, arguably to a much greater degree. Uh, yet they still get to trade with us. My, I mean, a lot of people use this as an excuse by saying, oh, we should deal with the Iranian government as well because we deal with the Saudis and they're just as bad. No, I think, I think that the real issue is that we should stop dealing with the Saudi government as well. Um, I think that, yeah, maybe, you know, allowing American companies, allowing opportunities for Iranians to interact with 
you know, the West and the outside world to avoid becoming, you know, another pariah state like North Korea. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing. And I think that the targeted sanctions against government officials and people that are in charge of um, Iran are, are a very good idea. Yeah, for sure, because of course I also absolutely despise the arms trade and the arms, uh, the profiting from selling arms that the American states do. This should also, of course, be the case, but profits are the priority, right? Um, yeah. Another thing that I wanted to sort of talk about was, I feel like, I don't know exactly, of course, what women in Iran are feeling like with wearing the hijab. I feel like, I don't know how much of them are forced and how much of them ge like genuinely want to, but uh, I feel like after this, we might even see a bigger cultural movement of women uh, and of liberation yeah. to maybe understand that, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to, this is a bit of a, I don't know, I don't know enough to talk about this maybe, but to me still the hijab is an oppressive sort of, uh, can be an oppressive tool, right? And we see it by how governments use it to oppress women if it's uh, mandatory to wear it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I do, I see where you're coming from, but I take issue um, with the framing of that because I do think that um, the hijab is only a tool of oppression when it's used by governments to enforce a strict way of behavior. Um, you know, many women that I know in my life make the choice to wear the hijab like entirely on their own it's a, you know expression of their religion and they should be free to do so yet governments in france and quebec don't allow them that opportunity um so it's used as a weapon on on both sides i think yeah for sure definitely um but i think what, what, what was interesting to me particularly was how women in iran when protesting are like cutting their hair taking off their hijabs uh which you know is such a morally like morally interesting thing to do if you truly like genuinely wear the hijab every day and if it's so religiously important to you to wear it because you know that's your religion to even do that in a protest i think is yeah. very brave and uh, shows a strong stance by women in a more cultural change so i'm very happy about that yeah and i mean again i think that women in iran are just looking for the choice they're saying if look if my neighbor wants to wear one because she feels that it's you know within her religious purview to do that she's more than welcome to but why are you making why are you making choices about how i dress myself and how i practice my religion it's about it's about freedom in the end yeah and also what was interesting to me what you mentioned is that only the minority supports uh, a mandatory yeah. and i don't know how does that work though because I haven't seen many men on social media talking about this or being in protests. Well, I mean, the unfortunate reality is, I mean, I have seen men, you know, at the protests as well. But I think the unfortunate reality about a lot of these issues is that people don't care about them unless they're directly affected by it. Yeah. So they may not support the hijab um, ban like if it was their ideal society it wouldn't be sorry the hijab ma the mandatory hijab but 
if they're not really suffering as a result of it, are they really going to risk their necks by going out into the street and getting shot? Yeah, for sure. It's unfortunate, but I think it's just reality. Definitely. I do hope that we see... I mean, I don't know what to expect. Maybe we'll see a bigger crackdown on the rights of people like we're seeing right now, and it, it will even continue a bit more. Or we will see civil society winning and maybe a revolution is coming. I don't know. I started reading a, a book on like, when do civil wars start? So it's really interesting because it usually does start in these um, kind of authoritarian, but also countries with some democratic traits. So I think Iran fits into the scope of this in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll see. I guess we will. All right, everybody, that wraps up episode nine of Wake Up Call. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our commentaries. If you have any thoughts about anything that we said, uh, please feel free to, you know, say so on our social media, on our YouTube, uh, things like that. Uh, as usual, I'm going to remind you, at Wake Up Call Podcast with underscores in between on Instagram and Wake Up Call Podcast with no underscores or spaces on TikTok. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Uh, I really enjoyed this episode. And definitely follow us on TikTok because we always post earlier there usually and some exclusive content. So don't forget that. See you next week.